You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Let's listen to this. Savignon Blanc while uh, chatting with the folk. What could be better? <laughs> it's delicious. Well, hello, everybody. Today I have uh, the pleasure of sharing with you an interview I did with uh, the CEO, founder and CEO of a company called 2020 Research. Uh, his name is Jim Bryson. And I've wanted to catch up with Jim for a long time uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, he uh, created this company that really made a, uh, a big name for themselves in, uh, in the area of online research, and that's an area that I have a lot of interest in. Um, but in addition to that, Jim um, is uh, he's really just an all-around great guy. He um, three adopted children. He has three adopted children. And uh, has uh, started to build and fund a school for uh, poor children in Haiti. So uh, those uh, those things um, I thought were interesting. I thought uh, his story would be an interesting one to uncork. Uh, in addition, it turns out he was also uh, a state senator in Tennessee. So we talk a little bit about his road to politics, his motivation for being in politics. And uh, it's a shame he's no longer in politics because it really seems like he was one of the uh, the good guys, kind of unaffected by, um, you know, what can happen to people in, uh, in political life. So uh, thank you for listening in. Um, I think uh, this is a great story of entrepreneurship uh, and drive as well as, um, you know, uh, what being a good guy is all about. So uh, thank you for staying tuned and listening to my interview with Jim Bryson. All right. So today we're talking with Jim Bryson, who is the uh, founder and CEO of 2020 Research, among other things. And uh, Jim, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, participate in this conversation this morning. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you asking. So uh, give me the background to 2020 Research. How how old is 2020 Research right now? 
You know, back uh, just recently, September 22nd, we actually uh, celebrated uh, 28 years. It's a um, little bit slightly older than that as a corporation, but I joined the company 28 years ago, uh, September 22nd, uh, and I was the second employee. So we've been around a long time. We've seen a lot of change in those years. All right, so, so it wasn't. So I was under the impression that you founded the company, but it sounds like you joined it. Well, I did actually. It was another company. The way I got involved in it, there was a, um, a friend of mine who had who had started the company legally and wanted to start a mail order company back when people like this actually looked at catalogs, and um, the um, uh, and they and he brought me on. Actually, he asked me to help him do some research for his mail order company, and we got together and sat in a cracker barrel and made a decision we'd open a research firm instead. So we did, and I became the the second employee and. Two years later, he ended up leaving, and um, and I stayed with it. So I'm the, I guess I'm the, the uh, the gray hair in the organization now because I've been around the longest. <laughs> uh, so are, now, are you are you a Tennessee native? Where where do you come from? I originally came originally uh, kind of grew up in Arkansas for the most part. Um, so I grew up there, went to school in Texas, came to Tennessee to go to graduate school, uh, got an MBA at, at Vanderbilt, and ended up staying. Um, took a, a research class there, actually hated my research class, had no interest in getting into research, but I decided that I, I liked Nashville and wanted to stay here. So um, I got an offer from a research firm and uh, ended up getting into that's how I, that's how I ended up in, in marketing research. Uh, got a job at a really small research consultancy here, uh, survived there for nine months before I was uh, fired uh, for not doing uh, the not managing the data collection in a, in a very smart way. And uh, so and then uh, it was in the interim a few months later that uh, this opportunity to start 2020 came up that I was speaking at a few minutes ago. And, you know, I was young and had nothing else to do and, and took advantage of it. So how, how does a guy that didn't like research in college wind up having a, a tremendous career in research? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I tell young people a lot now, you know, you don't know what you're going to do. I have a 17-year-old son who I'm convinced is going to make money, uh, his money, uh, his career through uh, communicating, but he hates standing up in front of people and speaking. Um, the point is you just you don't know a lot of times what you're going to be good at when you're, you know, when you're, when you're young, but you, de- you develop a love for, um, for different things by, by just getting into them. I happen to fall into a situation where – I got into research. Um, I had some good people around me, and um, um, uh, and that just and I just ended up just stayed with it. A lot of times, sometimes it's just staying with it and finding a piece of it that you like. Uh, along the way, I discovered I didn't I wasn't a quant person, and I uh, really enjoyed qual. And that's good, so that I made decided to make qualitative my career. Well, let let let's build into that. So, what what was it like growing up in in Arkansas when you were growing up? <laughs> Well, I grew up in a small town. I actually grew up outside of a small town, so it was kind of a rural area. I grew up on a on a mountain uh, on, next to the Arkansas River, uh, between the Ozarks and the Washita Mountains. It was great. I could walk. I could walk out my back door and and walk out into the woods and go camping and and um, uh, hunting and fishing that kind of thing whenever I wanted to, pretty much. Um, so it was a great place to grow up. Uh, loved growing up in Arkansas, but um, but. You know, by the time I ended up in Tennessee, uh, there really wasn't uh, a whole lot to go go back for, and so I ended up staying here, and uh, it's worked out well. Now, did you uh, do you have any siblings uh, back in Arkansas? Well, I did, but that was one of the things that changed when I came to Nashville. I didn't know anybody, but now, uh, but a few years later, my mother moved here, and my sister moved here. She got married, and she has. Uh, 
she has uh, children, so my nieces are here, and then my my brother, who was living in Seattle at the time, uh, he also moved here, and so we pretty much got have family here, which is is nice. Um, makes makes it it really makes it home. Yeah, and Steph, I mean, I, I uh, we recently moved to L.A. from – or the L.A. area. We don't live quite in L.A., um, but we moved out here from Connecticut where my wife and I lived for – I mean, I, I moved there in 1983, so you can do the math on that. She lived there her entire life, and our entire family is back east. So this summer we, we come out to L.A., and it's uh, – it's it's a hard transition when you when you move away and don't know a soul. Yeah, I can't imagine it. You know, one of the things I've talked to my wife about is um, I would love to. I, I just as I mentioned earlier, I'd gotten back from Denver and I love the mountains and uh, the Rocky Mountains are beautiful. And I kind of grew up in the mountains of Arkansas. And but and I, I told my wife not too long ago, I said, you know, we've just been here so long now. I don't know if. I would love to live. There are plenty of places I'd love to live, but I'm not sure I could leave the relationships that I have. So I admire you for being able to do that. I don't know if I could do that at this point in my life anyway, just because I've been here for 30 years now. Well, we, um, we, I think we discounted how, how difficult the, uh, the transition would be, but you know, nothing lasts forever. And if, if we feel the call to, uh, to go back, we can, we can always go back. Yeah, that's, that's nice. You to kind of have that flexibility. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, qualitative. You said uh, early on you realized that quant research wasn't for you. What what was it about quant research that wasn't for you? Well, I'll tell you, just to kind of uh, fill in the gaps, we uh, when we started this company, it was a qualitative firm, uh, but we quickly realized that we could not survive as a qualitative firm in Nashville, Tennessee. The market just wasn't big enough. We were trying to, uh, we were just trying to make it. So, uh, we were going calling on local companies to do research, and most of what they wanted to do was quant. So we quickly kind of put on a quant hat and said, hey, we can do quantitative as well, and actually built a phone room and had a pretty uh, ro- had a more robust in some ways quantitative operation than we did a qualitative operation. Uh, let's see, 10 years into that, in 1996, actually, um, I was looking at, I looked at, I learned kind of one of my big lessons in, in business, which was when um, I looked at the business and we had a phone room and I had statistical people on staff and I had all of these this quant stuff going on, and yet the qualitative business was the part that I enjoyed. It was the part that was um, that was actually making us that was actually making money, and so um, I ended up uh, making a, what what was a hard decision at the time to um, to divest uh, literally half our business, which was a quant operation. And uh, and tell and and make a strategic decision in in ninety five ninety six that we were going to just focus on qualitative, um, and I learned at that point the value of focus and how important that is, uh, and the value of kind of following your passion, because that was something that that was what I was was what I was interested in, and so we once we did that uh, we became uh, we we began to grow and be more successful. Uh, but I wasn't personally, you know, I'm not a statistician. I didn't enjoy statistics in school, and that's a lot of what my research class was. Um, I don't, you know, I can write questionnaires. I know what they they can be, um, but I don't, I don't really enjoy it, and I don't really understand a lot of the the, the techniques that need to be used uh, related to, you know, it's like conjoint and many of, and regressions and other things that that I just never enjoyed or never really knew how to do. I kind of felt like a fish out of water. What now? What is it about qualitative research that that you have a passion about. What is it that you that that draws you into into qualitative? 
Yeah, you know, I think for me, it's understanding people. It's um, you know, it's being able to sit down with, with someone and talk to them about you know what's important to them around a product or service or a, or a life situation, and and to listen not just to the words that they're using, but to listen to what they're saying, and and to try to understand that. And and uh, and to me, that's what I really enjoyed. As I got more further and further in my career, I found that I enjoyed um, IDIs more than I did focus groups. And the reason, even though focus groups were great, because there was usually a lot of energy around them, and there was it was uh, you could do a lot of brainstorming and different things. What I really enjoyed about the IDIs was sitting down with one person and getting the and understanding what that story was, and being able to ask them about how their story intersected with the story that my clients had or were trying to create and and understand where that intersection was and where the bumps were and where the where the opportunities were and um so I think that's what I enjoyed about it as much as everything anything else. I guess the other piece that comes to mind is I'm a little bit of a problem solver. Right? You know, somebody I love to somebody starts telling me about, you know, something that's going on and sometimes I just want to fix it and it drives my wife crazy because sometimes she just wants to tell me and I want to fix it or I want to talk about how it can be fixed and uh, because I, I like to brainstorm those things. I like to fix those. And a lot of times that's what we're doing for clients is that we're we're talking to people about how talking to individuals who are consumers maybe, or at least consumers of our clients' products and talking about how do we fix this problem that our client has, whatever that may be, and that's what we know and uh, we can help our clients with. So that's a little bit of a long roundabout answer, but I think it has to do with um, understanding people and their stories and helping you to solve problems. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, um, a, lo- a lot of people ask me, you know, how can I get into the industry because there's um, – you know, a lot, a lot of people reach out to me, let's say on LinkedIn, they're in graduate school or they're undergrads and they, they want to get involved in in qualitative research. And they say, well, how can I how can I do that? And it's it's not really a, a field that you can just jump into. And, and they tell me, well, what, what do I need to be? What do I need to do? What do I need to study? And I, I usually wind up counseling them. It's it's not that you have to study something, but you just have to have a natural curiosity for the human condition almost. And that's that's almost that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. It's a this kind of natural curiosity wanting to sit in front of somebody or interact with them somehow and uncover their story. You know, I think you're right. I think it's curiosity is one of the one of the key components of somebody that's good at what we do because um because you've got to, you know, it's really easy if you're not a naturally curious person to be so focused on your discussion guide or so focused on what it is I'm trying to find out from this person or so focused on what am I going to say next. Uh, but if you're a naturally curious person who's really interested in people, um, you can you can you can really focus on who that person is and focus on what they're saying and not worry about necessarily what am I going to say next or what's my next question, but really want to understand. And not just fill out a questionnaire uh, that happens to be in front of you. Do you um, now? I know you run Twenty Twenty, and, and and that company does a lot of different things when it comes to qualitative. But do you still make the time or have the time to to conduct some interviews on behalf of clients? Is is sort of being a practitioner still in your wheelhouse? Yeah, I don't. I'm not really a practitioner much anymore. Um, every once in a while, I'll do something. I just did an online uh, board, uh, an online project last week, but it was for it was for a it was for a nonprofit group that I'm involved with, and uh, so I you know we did it pro bono, but and that was that was really fulfilling for me. So I don't really get to do it much anymore. The company has grown to the point that I really 
have to spend my time paying attention to the growth in the product and uh, helping to just kind of, uh, you know, watching the, make sure we have the right people on the bus and, and that the bus is going in the right direction. So that's where, kind of where I spend my most of my time uh, in the business these days. Is there anything you miss about being a, a practitioner, you know, being a moderator? I know you've done over probably a couple thousand focus groups or, or interviews, I, I'd imagine, by this point in your life. Anything you miss about it? You know, I miss what I was saying before. I miss just kind of sitting down and understanding, um, you know, understanding people and, and what drives them and having that opportunity to be intellectually challenged um, uh, in that way. I think I do miss that. The other thing I miss, to be honest, um, I miss some of my clients. Uh, I used to – I had two or three clients that I had very good relationships with that that trusted me. And I think when you get to a point in your career, uh, hopefully everybody gets there where you're not just hustling for work necessarily, but you have clients that really trust you and they come to you because they really believe in that you can help them and they listen to you on methodology and they listen to you on the insights and the findings and the applications. Uh, and you really you really form that partnership or that team kind of relationship. I miss that. Um, I miss those clients. I had, I had two or three of those that... I still honestly uh, connect with, especially uh, a, a couple. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with one uh, last week just to kind of catch up on, you know, how the kids were doing and that type of thing. Because those are the kinds of relationships that you can form in this business, and uh, and I do miss I miss I miss that. Do you miss the travel at all? <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. Actually, I'm doing a lot of travel still, but it's different. I'll tell you what I enjoy about what I'm doing now is I get to go out to dinner at night, <laughs> um, and that's really fun. Uh, you know, I go to a city. Uh, I go to a, I go to a city, and I'm there either to talk to a, you know a client on behalf of our business or to um, attend some kind of event or to speak somewhere. And uh, those are typically, you know, daytime things. And so it's uh, it's really nice now to have a chance to to kind of look around, find a good restaurant, and go out and have a leisurely meal somewhere different when you travel. So I'm en- I'm enjoying that aspect of it at least. You know, I have to say, if I, I love what I do, I love interviewing people. But it's it's the getting on the airplane, you know, week in and week out, you know. Three, sometimes three markets a week that I, you know, I'm starting to resent a bit. And my wife, you know, I, I've been doing this now for 10 years. My wife is, is constantly says to me, you know, I didn't sign up for this when we got married 15 years ago, me being away all the time. So it is, it is a stressful, it can be a very stressful career. It really can. Now, you know, a real quick story on that. My sister, who's a school teacher, she um, she kind of keeps up. She would had was keeping up with my life kind of from a distance, so to speak. And you know, she knew I was on the road all the time. And she's and she lo- she likes to travel. And she said, "Wow, you just have the best life. That is so great." Well, then she decided she would she was going to move. This was several years ago. She was going to move to Nashville, and she decided to come spend the summer here. In between, and she lived with um, she lived with us, and I was gone all the time. And by the end of the summer, she looked at me and she said. I wouldn't have your job for anything in the world. And uh, what she realized was, you know, the travel is just not – It's it sounds good on the surface for a lot of people, but it, it's really grinding and on people that are traveling. And it's also really grinding, like you said, on your on your family as well. It can be it can be tough. Real tough. So, uh, so back in, in 96, you make a decision to divest Quant and you, you focus on Qualor or about 96. Uh, pretty soon after that, you – 
it looks like you you put a pretty big bet on uh, maybe I don't know how big the bet is, but on online in, in terms of qualitative. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, we actually, pretty soon after that, we actually opened a new office. We had an office in Nashville. We opened an office in Charlotte in 99, I believe. And then the next thing we began to look at was um, uh, in around 99, 2000, about 2000, I think, was the dot-com bust. And when people been investing in dot-coms in the late 90s trying to and because they were the darlings of the investment world. But uh, we, I was kind of looking around with a couple of other people about at how um, – how was the internet going to impact uh, our business qualitative? And it, it was pretty clear how it was going to impact quantitative, but not so much qualitative. Um, and so in 2000 uh, to 2001, we began to play around with the, uh, the concept of online software and um, worked with um, uh, working originally with a guy out of Colorado named Ted Kendall, who was a client of mine at the old West West uh, back then with tele, tele, telephone company. And uh, we were talking about it, and he's a, he's a real forward thinker kind of guy. And uh, so we started developing software to, uh, to do qualitative. So we developed it, introduced it in 2001. As a matter of fact, the very first project that I did, um, I still think is pretty amazing when I go back and read the transcripts. Um, I was a test project. We had just developed the software on 9-11-2001, and uh, we immediately recruited people nationwide to participate in this, in this online qualitative study using this new, this new uh, bulletin board platform. And for, for a week, we talked, to, uh, we talked to people all across the country about the uh, ups and downs and ins and outs of their emotions and what was going on that week as, as, uh, as we were trying to process 9-11. And to this day, it remains one of the most fascinating studies I've ever done. Uh, but that's kind of how we got into it. The, uh, but you know, back then, people were telling us that you can't do qualitative online. Uh, it's... Uh, it just wasn't possible, and it was so the uptake was really slow. We didn't really get a good uptake until about 2006. We just kind of held on to it and tried to continue, continue doing it until then. That's when it began to grow. So I, I actually started my career back in '96, and that's when, now obviously, Quant was going online, um, but qualitative. I mean, there were some early, early incarnations. Um, and I won't mention any company names, but online chat was pretty big in terms of online qualitative. Right. And I That's remember right. uh, running some some studies as an observer. So I was a client at the time. Uh, I wasn't nearly qualified to ask anybody any questions. Um, but I remember like the experiments and, and how the servers would crash when we would try and show some stimuli or um, – and I was sort of a, a doing both traditional and online at the time. And the one thing I really missed about the uh, about traditional when I was running online was there was absolutely no emotion involved. Um, you know, you couldn't hear how people were responding, see their body language, um, and and so much of communication being nonverbal. I think it it got a a pretty you know even back in ninety seven ninety eight during the dot com boom. Things weren't moving very quickly in terms of online for for qual, um, but I do remember you know qual board uh, coming around um, and and starting to use it and it was it was different. I mean it was asynchronous, so it wasn't real time. Mm -hmm. um, right. But it brought in you know the, the the thoughtfulness in responses that I would see from from participants was amazing, and the transcripts were. You know, it it you knew that there was a different animal um, mm -hmm. than 
than the real time well, stuff. And I think, yeah, that, and that's what that's. I think that's what eventually happened. Um, you know, we had to make a decision because the chat was big. And we had to make, but I, as a as a as a researcher, I wasn't a big fan of the chat that was going on, and that's why we went the bulletin board route. Um, and in the early days, um, that was kind of what what people what we we did kind of two kinds of studies. One was where uh, we did a lot of work actually back then with things like HIV and those kinds of things. When I say a lot, we did more work with that than anything else. There still wasn't a lot of work. Um, where people where the anonymity was very important. Uh, that's really was the biggest selling point back then. Um, and then people began to slowly understand what, what you were just talking about, which is, you know what, it's good for some things. It's not going to be good for everything, but it is going to be good for some things. And so there began to be a little bit of traction, um, and that began to pick up speed in about 06. And I think that was because of uh, because of the uh, uh, Internet penetration passed about 60% of homes uh, in 2006. And I think that's when things began to pick up. And qualitative people began to say, hmm, you know, I don't have to use it all the time, but this is a, this is a valid qu- uh, qualitative tool. You know, the, the way that I use it more often than, than, than anything else is um, as a way of – so I, I do a lot of ethnographies. Um, you know, you talk about doing IDIs. I, I do probably more ethnographies than anything else these days. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I love using the platform for – I don't want to say pre-interviewing people, but just getting to know these people um, – you know, with ethnography, you're in someone's home maybe two hours, and you know you you you, you can't bring a lot of observers with you because that's just weird. But if you want to give your clients a sense of who these people are, um, what I find I do is is using the platform to uh, just you know you really get to know these people over a couple of days before meeting them in person, and it helps me do two things. Number one, it helps me identify those that I really want to have a follow up conversation with because let's face it. You know, if you interview 30 people, a couple of them might not be stellar. Um, So it helps me almost pre-audition those that I go into homes with. And then I know so much about these people that we have, and they know a little bit more about me, um, so I'm not a a complete stranger to them, that we have much more productive conversations. So it's the mixing of the methods that I see as as, uh, becoming a trend and becoming very popular these days. Absolutely, and I think that's because you know because you're paying attention and you're really thinking about how to how to use it well. I think that I think that's a great uh, great example of how to use online, and we're seeing more and more uh, what we call hybrid approaches, which are more traditional ideas, focus groups, uh, ethnographies, those kinds of things mixed with online. So you kind of you have an opportunity to get the best of both worlds, but also to um, extend your learning. Um, and I think what you said, which is really crucial that people kind of forget, is build trust. Um, you know, you're able to be, you're building trust between you and the the uh, your your respondents, so that when you go into their home, they kind of know who you are, and they know the they know kind of what this is about, and it's not it's not showing up at their door and and them wondering, okay, I agreed to this, but I'm a little nervous about what I agreed to. It's almost like your friends now, and we're seeing that happening pre-focus groups, even post-focus groups, and using focus groups sometimes as the uh, the way to let people get to know each other, and then doing a pretty rich, rich uh, discussion afterwards. So it's that that whole hybrid thing has been a, has been something that we've seen growing tremendously, just because it uses the best of both worlds. Now we um, we we talked a little bit about travel and and at least my disdain for for travel and. Um, <laughs> But also, I love to interview people, um, and, and I do love that sort of live interaction. 
And, you know, I was talking before, you know, the, the, the real time chat sessions, um, you know, you lose, you lose the body language, you, you lose the emotion, but now with broadband internet penetration being high, um, webcam interviewing has, um, in my mind, uh, it hasn't ta- exploded yet, but it's it's becoming more popular. And I, I know I was reading your blog uh, recently, and, and there was a story on there. I think it was a pretty recent story um, about a moderator who uh, missed a flight or, or flights were delayed, and you had a, a solution for them kind of ready to go. Can you talk a little bit about webcam interviewing and where you see that going? Yeah, webcam interviewing is growing really fast, and it's pretty – It's uh, it's – you know, I think it's it makes a lot of sense because you're still getting that you know personal interaction. You're just not sitting down with them. Do you lose something? You probably lose a little bit in body language and that type of thing. But I think it's tremendous for uh, for IDIs. Uh, it works really really well. It's, you know, it's like it's like Skype, and and people have great conversations over Skype, and they can do the same thing using uh, webcams for uh, qualitative interviewing. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what what happened on that situation. You're talking about that was just recently. We uh, actually on Sunday. After afternoon uh, we got a um, because we run we run 24/7 uh, with our technical support because we're, we're literally working around the world so we have to run we have to have people available 24/7 so we have we got on Sunday afternoon we got a we got a message from a client that said uh, my flight's been canceled I can't get to Chicago and I'm wondering if you guys can help out so what we essentially the the interviews the IDIs were starting on 8:30 on Monday morning so from Sunday afternoon to Monday morning, what we were able to do was just simply to schedule um, the uh, uh, the webcam, the, the interviews to be done by webcam rather than uh, from the facility because the interviews, the uh, the people were com- the participants were coming into the, the facility. So we just we just had the facility set up a computer with a webcam, and the moderator was um, I, uh, at their at, at her office, and she moderated the IDI, the interview, uh, using uh, with the respondent looking at a webcam and literally her clients in the back room watching live uh, while she was uh, at a distance. And, you know, um, I wasn't there, but it, but uh, the, the feedback that I got from the moderator was that she and the clients were just were really impressed with how well it works. Um, so it sparked in my mind this whole, I'm wondering about the, the whole uh uh, you know what's going to happen with travel going forward. Even if we have people come in, even if we even if we still use facilities, will that change the way that we do moderating? I'm not sure that it will, but it sure is uh, food for thought. Absolutely, and it amazes me that I, I still, um, you know, it's it's 2014 now. I've been doing webcam interviewing probably for five years, maybe. Um, and it amazes me that there are, are it's still new news to some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what? A lot of people in our in, in our business, um, they're just they're not they, they got into this business because they're people they're, they're people people so to speak, and they're not they're, you know they're not technology people, um, and so they're still you know they're still trying to figure out um, trying to figure out how to use technology, and you know for for a lot of people you know especially my kids for instance webcams are, are and phones are second nature. You get people in their 50s and 60s, and it's still it's still a struggle to figure out, you know, what's the button to turn on a webcam? And how do you do that? So it's we're still I think there's still a, quite a bit of, of of upside and a lot of growth for for that particular methodology. So we talked a bit about uh, researcher and and 
business owner Jim Bryson. Talk to me about you know former state senator Jim Bryson. I know you 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 refer to yourself as a recovering politician. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, so I've always had an interest in politics, um, and I've always kind of followed it probably more closely than some other people. And I told you I like problems, and I like to fix problems. And so I, I, I look around, I see a lot of problems, and I think, well, you know, I seem like. Maybe it's maybe I'm just arrogant. I think because I, I kind of feel like, well, you know, I could do something about that if I just had the was in the right position. But since I've always liked it and all, I had an opportunity in 2002 uh, to run for uh, the state senate. Um, I had uh, uh, the company was in a, in a place where it was relatively stable and great uh, leadership in the company. It was running pretty well. It didn't need me on a day-to-day basis, and being a state senator is a part-time job, so it worked out. Um, so it worked out well. But uh, I had an opportunity to do that. Um, I uh, basically took six months off from the job uh, and uh, devoted that six months to running for office. I was fortunate enough to win that election. And I served for four years in the state Senate in Tennessee, um, not in the U.S. Senate, but in the state Senate, and had a uh, really had a good run, really enjoyed it, really enjoyed, as I said, fixing the problems. I enjoyed the policy side of it as much or more than the, po- than the politics side. Uh, it's fun to be in the mix. It's fun to kind of know what's going on kind of on the inside. It's a lot of fun. I made some really good friends, um, and I enjoyed it, um, had an opportunity because of the situation to make a real long shot run in 2006 for governor, and I knew it was a long shot, uh, won my party's nomination, uh, but then ended up losing in the general election in 2006. And at that point, I just kind of said, you know, I think it's time for me to go back to go back to work. And um, so came back to work, and that's when we really began to uh, invest in our online business. So that was that was my political career. It was pretty short, but it was meaningful for me, and hopefully make made a difference here in Tennessee. What do you uh, What do you miss most about it? You know, people ask me that a lot, and I think it's really kind of hard to say. I miss being on the inside and kind of knowing what's going on. I miss having, uh, I, uh, I miss having impact on policy and government and how things uh, should work and how to how people can be helped uh, through government. Um, uh, I miss some of the the friendships. Uh, I would probably be a little bit disingenuous if I didn't say that I miss the, uh, you know, there's a certain. Uh, Ego satisfaction, I guess, with being a, a state senator. So I kind of, you know, you, you'd be. I think anybody that says they didn't miss that would probably not be telling the whole truth. Um, so I miss, I miss all of those things. It's what you know. What I've just, uh, you know, life goes in seasons, and I consider my season as a state senator to have been fairly successful, to have been enjoyable for me. Uh, but I, but that season has kind of come and gone, and I, and so though I missed parts of it, I don't really think about it a lot. Um, and uh, and I've kind of moved on to more to other things that are, in a lot of ways, uh, just as or, or even more exciting, and I probably get more fulfillment out of. Now, just to bridge the two worlds, did you use qualitative or quantitative research at all when you were on the campaign trail? Not a bit. Um, I did not when I was running for for Senate. Now, when I did when I ran for governor, we did use some we did some polling, uh, but not a ton, and it was mostly a budget issue. Um, and we kind of knew where we were cause, um, on that because um, you know it was, it was a long shot run. But um, I didn't use a lot, except I did use the skills every day. You know, one of the great things about being in in, 
especially in the qualitative end, because that's the end that I know, is that you learn a lot of skills as far as connecting with people. You learn how to listen to people and how to respond to people in a way where they understand that they have been heard. Um, and you and you learn a lot of what we do in our business is about communicating. And um, all of those skills translate on the campaign trail. All of those skills translate in the in in the uh, in a political environment or in a governing environment. And so, though I didn't, you know, do formal IDIs or formal focus groups, um, I did use the skills a lot. And you know, just to kind of expand on that just a tad, I've, one of the things that I am will be forever be grateful about to qualitative is uh, is given me those kinds of skills which I think are valuable skills for any individual uh, to have and to learn and I was fortunate enough to learn them through my through my uh, my profession you know it, it's uh, interesting um, there are many times particularly if I have to leave on a Sunday where I'm sitting on an airplane and just questioning to myself you know how much longer can I do this for? Uh, and I'm sure a lot of uh, qualitative practitioners feel the same. You know, you're you're away from your family. You know, you've just probably had a very stressful experience being touched in inappropriate places by the TSA. And, you know, you sit there thinking, you know, is this really what I want to be doing for the next, you know, however many years? And I often wonder, well, what else could I do? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm an interviewer by trade. I'm a consultant by trade. I, it's where my passion is. I, I can't go into quant research because that's just not who I am. Um, so maybe there's a future for me in politics. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's a good idea. You should, you should think about that, Mike. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll get up there. I'll make all sorts of promises. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you one thing right now. I am going to give you whatever. I don't know. <laughs> that's my terrible so one, Bill Clinton person. Favorite, oh, you should – one of my favorite opening lines when I was uh, when I would have to speak somewhere, I'd say, you know, my mother used to really get upset with me by getting into politics because she would look at me. She's a teacher, and she would look at me and she'd say, you know what politics means, don't you? And I'd say, well, uh, yeah, I know. Tell me, mother. She'd say, it means poly means many, and ticks are blood suckers. <laughs> and so the politics is many blood suckers. And uh, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it is. But at the same time, it's very uh, it's very rewarding. In a, lot, in a lot of ways. So good luck with that. If, if I can help with anything, let me know. <laughs> there we go. We'll have uh, – you know, if you if you want to do a, consider a presidential run, it could be Bryce and Carlin, you know, 2016. Hey, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> you know, it's, losing is not as bad as, it, as it's all chalked up to be. So we can run. There, we'll be there for the ride. So, we, we, so we've got, you know, Jim Bryson, researcher, businessman, politician. Tell me about the, the charitable side of things and – and what role sort of charitable activities play in your life and, and why they may be important for you? Well, you know, there's something to this midlife thing. Uh, you know, you come to a point, uh, I've always kind of had an interest in a lot of different things, but I never really focused it very much until the last several years. Um, and um, uh, it's become really important because you get to a point in life where you kind of say, okay, you know, what am I really doing? And I'm busy, but am I really doing anything? And um and you hope that throughout your life you have a lot of in, you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of impact on your children and your family and your friends. Uh, 
but what happened to me was I got involved. I went down to Haiti in, um, and really got involved down there in uh, helping to build a school. I mean, I'm still working on it. It's probably going to be something that I will work on for the rest of my life. It's a long-term project. The idea that what we're doing is we're building a school down there that would be that um, uh, will be primary will be specifically for kids orphans, uh, which I have three adopted children, so that's always been something that's interesting to me personally. Uh, but it's a it's um, it's for orphans that don't have an opportunity to go to to go to school and to complete their education, uh, but specifically to teach to give them not only that uh, strong academic uh, understanding, but to um, uh, teach them leadership skills and service with the idea that we're kind of uh, uh, paying it forward, so to speak, and leveraging our investment today that these kids uh, will grow up and when they're my age, they'll have a, they'll have a significant impact on thousands or millions of people uh, because of the opportunity that they had when they were, they were, when they were kids. And uh, so it's, it's kind of one of those things, what makes it fun for me is that it's a, it's a little bit of an adventure every time I go to Haiti. It's something that I've, I get to invest in kids and in in something I think is important, which is education. And it's something that I'm doing that will hopefully outlive me uh, in the sense that, you know, this, I'll, I'll never really see uh, the, uh, you know, the full impact that these, these kids can have on, on their country and in, you know, on their community. And so uh, that makes it kind of fun and exciting. And, that's, so that's been one of the main things that I've been working on in addition to uh, business and family stuff over the last uh, four years now. So what, what drew you down to Haiti? So why Haiti, you know, over all the other places you could have uh, chosen to go to? You know, it just came up. It just happened. Um, what happened was uh, I told you I've got, uh, I've got three adopted kids. Uh, three of my four children are adopted. And um, so I've always had an interest in adoption and orphan care, but never really spent a lot of time doing much with that, uh, that interest. Um, and then when the, when the earthquake in Haiti happened, um, my, actually the, my church here uh, was interested in maybe building an orphanage down there. And so they said, you know, you've got an interest in this. Why don't you go down with some other people and check it out? So I did. Uh, came back, and, and that idea just didn't really go anywhere um, here. And so I just I just couldn't let go of this, this concept of this school that, that came to me while I was, while I was down there. And uh, I couldn't let go of it, and so I went back about uh, three or four months later and spent some time down there talking to people about the concept of the school and what it might be, and and it just seemed like it was the it was the right thing to do. So uh, I just felt like it was what I what I needed to be involved in. So came back and in the fall of uh, 2010 uh, started putting together an organization to begin to uh, to build that school. And so you know, just you know, things just you just kind of get involved in things sometimes, and and they they come about, and that's what that's what this is. Oh, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. No, my pleasure. I'll share it anywhere and everywhere I can. <laughs> <laughs> it's really gotten to be a passion, and um, it's one of those things that. Uh, uh, you know, I come to work during the. I come to work now, and and I'm and I'm really doing two things. I'm building. I'm trying. I want to build a company because that's fun and it's challenging for me. But I also want to use the um, the. Uh, I want to use the company, and I want to use the the skills that um, that I've developed over over my life for something. Um, something that I'm passionate about as well and that's what the that's kind of what the Joseph school is all about it's about it's about using the skills and the resources that that I've been given in a in a in a uh, significant what I think is a really significant way well you're thinking about that that legacy you know what and what you want to be remembered for um and 
You know, it sounds like, you know, sure, you want to be remembered for building a company, but, hey, wouldn't it be great to be remembered for building something a bit, something that had a little bit more impact on the human condition than than just a uh, a corporation? Yeah, you know, I mean, when when it's all said and done, um, you know, the only thing you really, the only legacy you really have are the impact you have on people. Um, you know, we're, we're built for relationships, and uh, if you if you're not making a positive impact on people, some, then you know, then you know, what do you what's what are you really doing? That's kind of where I've come down. So, um, you know, so you know, I'm trying to be more. I'm you know, as I'm trying to be more intentional with my family. I'm trying to be more intentional with my friends. I'm trying to be more intentional with where I spend my time, and and I'm trying to be intentional with what I'm doing in Haiti. And uh, it's really um, so. Part of you know, you asked about politics, and one of the things that I have, I feel like my life is richer now than it was then, even though I enjoyed it, um, because I'm I'm really being intentional about where where am I spending my time and and uh, building strong relationships, and I like it. It's fun. Well, there's a uh, there's a country music song um, that has a lyric. Uh, I'll probably butcher it. It says, um, "I've never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch." That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Really you, you you can't take anything with you, right? So you may as well leave something behind that you're proud of. Yeah, you know, it's it's fun. so now I'm feeling bad. You, you, I mean, we're doing this interview because we're talking about you know talking about my career, which makes me feel really old. It's kind of like okay, before you die, let's talk about you know what your what your life's been like. And uh, now we're now we're literally talking about dying. So we're talking uh, about hearses. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, <laughs> but you know, it's, eventually, I guess it's going to have all of us in it. Yeah, well, there you go. So, um, just as we wrap up, you know, if 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 to think about the industry, because we, I guess, we should probably talk a little bit more about qualitative research. Um, what, what advice do you would would you give anybody who's looking to get involved in this business right now? Right now, well. Um, Um, if I were going to give somebody advice today, just kind of thinking, where's this industry going? Um, I'm just going to be real. I'm going to be real transparent with this. Um, I'm going to start with what I would not do, and then I'll work into maybe what I would do. What I would not do is what um, a lot of us have done over the years, which is be a, um, a transactional uh, moderator. And what I mean by that is, uh, most of my career. I've been able to, and many of, of my colleagues have been able to make a really good um, uh, career from understanding the process of qualitative research and having the relationships all over the country to be able to to build, to go and do um, to do qualitative. Uh, qualitative of the future, I think, is going to be very different, and I think it's going to be more about it's going to be more about real consulting. And really understanding and really partnering with your clients to help them understand their problems and being able to bring a lot of different tools to the table. It's not going to be just about, you know, knowing how to do focus groups, process that uh, that whole research project through the through the system cleanly without any hiccups. And and um, so I think I think um, anybody who wants to get into business today, I think they need to really understand. Um, I think I would spe- probably some specialty. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but some specialization would probably be helpful. But I think really focusing on how do I consult with my client and bring the right tools to the table at the, in the right way at the right time and then be able to uh, provide uh, really actionable, uh, uh, clear, and fairly fast um, 
uh, uh, insights on the back end. Um, I think qualitative has always been uh, expensive, difficult, and slow. And it's going to have to be um, less expensive, easy, and fast. And and so I th and and so the real value that the moderator is going to bring is going to be the uh, the real consulting about how to solve problems. Yeah, I mean it's 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 not good enough just to be somebody who can get people talking. It's it's about sort of what to do with all of that, how to synthesize it, how to do it quicker, how to break some of those conventions of, of qualitative research. And you just mentioned them. It's time-consuming. It's expensive. Um, and, and so many people who do it, um, it almost feels like they're just playing back what was heard versus taking the time to really synthesize it and focus on what it all means. Mm -hmm. And I think you know they're going to have to be able to to manage some technology. I mean, look at what you know, look at what how my kids interact with each other. Um, they're interacting uh, mostly on their phone, uh, but they're but you know they can connect with anybody in the world at any time. And um, I think that's that's going to change the way we do qualitative. When I think follow if we follow follow communication patterns, and uh, that's where qualitative is going, um, because qualitative is about communicating in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I think that that just about does it for for this one. How do you feel? You feel good about this conversation? I do, Mike. You really you are a great interviewer. Congratulations <laughs> on the, on the, uh, working at Holland Partners. I'm sure they've got. A, I'm sure that they really enjoy working with you. But I appreciate the opportunity to do this, and and it's been fun. Kind of a little bit of walk down memory lane, and and try to help me to you've helped me to kind of formulate some thoughts around some different things, like you know if I were entering the field today what would i do so so thank you for that it's been a lot of fun no i, I appreciate you making the time i know you're a busy man and uh have a have a great rest of your day and and hopefully an early start to the weekend well thank you mike you too okay jim take care all right